image has their owner to see them with his eyes. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother, mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Uh, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and, and anger. Behold, I have seen, uh, I, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and what he is not able to, uh, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A lot in there. So we're not going to get to all of it, but let's, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your spirit to be our teacher. To not just instruct our minds, but to lead our hearts in repentance and faith. Instruct us in your goodness. And uh, uh, teach us about your generous hand. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would uh, just guide these words, um, the many lives that are present here, that you would uh, um, individualize all these words. For each person, 
that you would let us hear the words that we need to hear. And we ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're talking this morning about the, the topic of money and wealth, which was, if you've read through the Gospels, was uh, actually a, a, one of Jesus' main topics that he talked about. Actually, I just read somewhere that Jesus, about 15% of Jesus' teaching is devoted to, to money and wealth, which uh, just by comparison, uh, if you took all of Jesus' teaching on heaven and hell combined, that would be less than how much he talked uh, about money. And uh, one of his most famous sayings about money comes from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which is to say, if you want to know what you love, where your heart is, if you want to understand your heart, look at your money, look at your treasure, where it goes to. And because being a Christian is largely about what you love. It's about your affections, your desires, right? Because uh, Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. It's about love. We are beings that were built to love things and to be devoted to things. And Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, said that what sin is, is a disordering of our loves. So, for example, if you lie to a trusted friend... Um, that means that you loved your reputation more than you loved the, the trust that was in your friendship. It was a disordering of your love. You should love the friendship more than your reputation, but you love your reputation more. And they were disordered, so that's why you lied. And so how do I know in my life what I love most? What are the loves that are driving my life? What are the deepest passions that I care most about? If you want to answer that question... One way to do that is to follow your money. The things your money flows most easily toward are the things you care most about. You want to find out what you love in your heart? Look, you know, look at those things that you don't even have to question whether you should give your money to. It's just like obvious. Of course I'm going to spend my money on that. That's a non-negotiable. All of a sudden you know what the things that you value most. And... Um, that's why Jesus says where your treasure is, that is where your money is, that's where your heart is. There is almost no better mirror for your spiritual life than your relationship to your money. And so this morning, uh, it's important, uh, as we look at this passage on wealth, we realize that money is a big part of discipleship, it's a big part of following Jesus, walking with Jesus, being a Christian. And um, as we look at this topic in this passage, I just want to answer two simple questions. This is what they are. First, what are, what are the temptations that come with wealth and money? And of course, there are a lot of temptations. You know, 1 Timothy 6 tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So there's many evils that come out of a love for money, but there's a few that we're going to look at in this passage. So first, what are the temptations of wealth? And second, how does the gospel transform our relationship to wealth? So when we come to embrace the grace of God that's in Jesus, how does it all of a sudden change how we approach money, how we spend our money, how we, uh, how we enjoy our money? And so these are our two questions today. So first, um, uh, what are the temptations of wealth? And I want to highlight three temptations that we see in this passage, okay? So the first is this, is discontentment. One of the temptations that comes with wealth is discontentment. You see this in verse 10. He... 
who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, one of the things that money and wealth promises us is a better life. You know, if I just, if I had more money, if I had a better paying job, I could get a better house, and, um, and you know, everything would come together. I could have all the things that I want, and I would be happier, and, it would, and I could get to a place where I could feel like I've arrived. And this passage says that in reality, money will never satisfy you. Money does not bring contentment. And I, there's a famous quote from uh, John D. Rockefeller, who was, Rockefeller, uh, when he was alive, if, if you adjust for um, inflation, was, had a, a wealth of $336 billion. So he was the richest American that ever lived, $336 billion. And someone asked him one time, he was like, at what point do you have enough money? And he was like, well, just when I have one more dollar. How much is enough? One more dollar. And even at $336 billion, he was not satisfied. It doesn't matter. There's no point in which money now brings you contentment and satisfaction. And because wrapped up in the question of money is, of course, what is your vision of a good life? What is the good life? And for many of us, when we think of what the good life is, is it's tied into what you know, possessions or wealth we could acquire. And but the Bible tells us that the good life is learning to be loved by God and by others. Not everyone knows how to be loved by God and by others. And then once I've been loved by God and others, to then learn how to love God and love others as a result. It's a matter of your character. It's a matter of knowing the grace of God and it transforming your character. That's actually what a good life is, whether you're rich or poor. Being loved and loving others is what Jesus says is abundant life. That is a life that's just brimming over with abundant joy. And yet, wealth tends to promise us that a good life comes through material possessions. And if we believe that, we're kidding ourselves. And you look, at, look in chapter 6, verse 1. This is what it says. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. What this is saying is very possible that you, you gather, gather all kinds of possessions, you can buy whatever you want, and you're totally bored by them. They're totally hollow. There's a certain power that you need in order to enjoy things, to be content, and that power to enjoy things and feel contentment does not come from possessions or, or from money. So there is a, a temptation that when we love money and possessions is that we're going to be discontent because they're going to fail us, okay? So the first temptation is the discontentment. The second temptation is to anxiety. Ex a, mo a lot of anxiety that we experience in life is tied up with, with uh, money. And you see this in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. It's an interesting picture of this rich man who can't sleep. He's up at 2 in the morning. He's got all kinds of things that are running through his head that are, you know, stirring inside of him. And, uh, you know, there's another, there's a Psalm, Psalm 127, talks about, compares anxiety 
and sleeplessness, this is what it says, it is vain for you to rise up early and to go late to rest. This is someone who wakes up early and works, they're working all day. I mean, just like, you know, tons and tons of hours every single day. It's vain for you to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep comes as a result of being loved by God and not from anxious toil. Anxious toil will keep you up, the, the pursuit of possessions. And you know, it's interesting here that anxiety is tied actually not, to, in this passage at least, not tied to the poor, but it's actually tied to the rich, are the ones that are anxious about wealth. And you say, well, you know, you think the poor are the ones who are worried about, are they gonna have enough to make it through this month? But, you know, the rich, actually, they have all kinds of money that's tied up in investments. And you have all these, you know, if you have a million dollars tied up in something, the, the stock market tanks. Who's the one who's feeling a lot of anxiety about it? You know, who just lost a lot of money? And if you have all kinds of possessions and housing things and businesses that you're supposed to be taking care of, the more things you have, the more possessions you have, the more anxiety that you're going to experience. And so when we love money and possessions, we are often... Walk, uh, allowing ourselves to walk into temptations towards anxiety. Now, I think that anxiety is actually, the anxiety that comes from wealth, it, it's true for both the poor and the rich, the, those who have money and those who don't have money. And um, because obviously the poor can have anxiety about whether they're going to have enough money. But, you know, you can be obsessed with money even as a poor person. Um, just this last week, I was in uh, St. Louis I, on, on a trip, and I, I got an Uber ride from the airport uh, to my friend's house. And the Uber driver, he's, he's a funny guy. He was, we were talking the whole way. He's a Muslim. He's trying to convert me to, to, be, to Islam. And um, actually, he said I was born Muslim. And I, I didn't quite understand how that was. But, but um, we, had this, we had this good conversation. But he really wanted to know a lot of the financial matters of our church, how much the church pays me. And the whole conversation, I mean, so much of the conversation was wrapped up in money and how much money. And then actually, the, the friends I was, I, I was going to, I'm staying with in St. Louis, they're actually quite well off. And we pull up to their house and the guy says, is this your church? I was like, this is my friend's house. <laughs> like, this is your friend's house? Your friend's rich. But the point is that you could, you could be someone who doesn't have a lot of money and you could still be equally is obsessed with money as a rich person is. And so that anxiety that's tied into wealth is something that everyone can be, can be tempted towards. And, you know, one place that we experience that in particular is, is in marriages. You know, uh, for many marriages, one of the biggest points of conflict is around finances. And why is that? Why, why do finances cause such problems? It's because... Money is tied up with the things that you love and value the most. How you spend your money reflects the things that, that you are most devoted to. And what often ha happens is in marriage is you just talk about, why did you spend that money on this? Or how should we write our budget? And you're just talking at the budget level, but actually all these dollars are representing the deepest values of our lives, and we never talk about those things. What are the things that value most to us? Where do we want our money to flow to? And so even though you do write a budget and one person's not keeping the budget or both people aren't actually keeping the budget, it's because they have deep values that are at stake in the, where these dollars are being spent. What do we care most about? The money reflects our hearts. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And that's never talked about. And so, uh, 
And so tied up in money is a real potential, both for discontentment, when we love money, and also anxiety. But there's a third thing in this passage, is of course with money, we are tempted to greed as well. And you see this in verse 13. It says, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Interesting, interesting verse. Someone's holding on to their, their wealth, and it hurts them to hold on to it. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father to his son, but he has nothing in his hand. And so here you have a picture of a man who's been working really hard his whole life. Maybe he's the one who gets up early and goes to bed to late and, and striving and laboring. And he's trying to get some control of his life through these possessions. And, and he's not giving it away to anyone. And then at the end of all those years, there's this bad venture he has. And he just loses it all. It's incredibly miserable about it. And it's somehow this is tied into the fact that we are setting ourselves up for that when we have too tight of a grip on our money and we don't want to let it go. We don't want it to flow from us. In the same way that God opens his hand to us, we don't have open hands to others and to God and to his kingdom. And so, you know, I need to, I want to take a moment to talk about uh, the role of giving of our wealth to the Lord's work. Um, it's certainly a temptation for Christians that they would have riches that they hold on to to their hurt. And, you know, I'll, I'll just say, um, if you were here last week, I, I, I made an announcement that our church uh, was behind budget for the first quarter. And you might think, oh, now we're getting a sermon on money. Those, those two might be tied together. They're really not. I, I planned the sermon a year ago. And, um, and actually, I really... I, over the experience of six years, I don't have anxiety about the budget of our church. I mean, the Lord has said, seek first my kingdom, and all your needs will be cared for. And they have been abundantly. But for some of us, we've never had any teaching. Maybe you had very little teaching on, uh, on giving and, and what God expects of us with our, our wealth and our possessions. And, you know, I was just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm reading with my kids through the Old Testament book of Numbers. You know, at our dinner table, we just read a little passage of scripture after we eat. And we got to Numbers 18, which talks about how all Israel, all God's people were supposed to bring a tithe, that's a tenth of all the abundance that God had given them. And they bring it to the Levites, and, you know, in the tabernacle, and the, you know, the care for the tabernacle, and then, and then for the temple. And then the Levites, they would get, who were like the pastors, would get their livelihood from, uh, you know, doing the Lord's service. And then they would bring a tenth. You know, I was telling my kids, I was like, you know, people bring their tithe to the church, and that's how, that's how we live. And then we give a tenth of what's given to us, and all of it's God's abundance. And it's a part of our worship to give back to him. But, you know, one thing to note is that the Bible never says that we actually give God a tithe or a tenth. It's always that we bring a tithe. And what that means is because we're not, it's not like we have something that we're giving to God. It's that all that we had came from him. All that we have belongs to him. And we're bringing what's his back to him. And, you know, for some of us, you might think, well, numbers, it's not the Old Testament. Aren't things different now? We're in the New Testament. And you're right, things are different in the New Testament. You know what's happened now is that God, you know, in the Old Testament, he had saved Israel out of, out of slavery. Now he slaved, saved us out of sin. He sent his own son to shed his blood for us 
so that we might be forgiven and we might have an internal inheritance and we might belong to him and be a part of his church. And he's called us his own children and say that we are joint heirs with Jesus of all things. And we say, you're right, things are different now. We have even more reason to give now than we did in the Old Testament. We should be even more generous and our hands should be even more open. Why? Because we've received so much abundant grace from him. And this is the thing about learning to open our hands to the, the wealth that God has given to us is that tithing is not primarily about keeping the lights on in the, in the church or paying the church staff. It does all those things. It's important. But tithing is a part of worship. It is one of the things that shapes what you love. And that's the thing that's interesting about Jesus saying where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not only that your money is a mirror, but when you give your money to something, you have an investment in it, and you begin to love that thing more. And if you, none of your money goes to God's kingdom, and you say, you know, I'm not very excited about God, God's kingdom. I'm not very excited about God's word. I'm not very excited about the gospel. Those two things are related. The things that we're invested in are the things that we have passions for. So money is not only a mirror of our hearts, it's something that shapes our hearts. The things we give our money to, we begin to love more and more deeply. And so that's why money is certainly an important part of Christian discipleship in growing in our affections for Jesus and for the gospel. So, what are the temptations that come with wealth? These three things, discontentment, anxiety, and greed all important things. And you may hear that and say, you know, well, what do you expect me to do? I, you can't just turn any of those things off, right? If you feel anxiety, I, and, you know, and I, I've experienced some anxiety, some of you feel a lot of anxiety about a lot of things. You're like, it's not just something you can turn off and say, okay, I won't be anxious anymore. And I think that's true also with discontentment and with greed. You can't just say, I'm going to start acting differently. It doesn't work like that. Um, because the thing that changes our hearts is not a law. Don't be discontent, don't be anxious, don't be greedy. The thing that changes our heart is a story. It's a story that says Jesus is the true king of all things. He is the firstborn of, over all creation. All things belong to him. Became a servant. He became poor. He didn't even have a place to live. He, uh, you know, foxes have, uh, birds of the air have, have nests and the foxes have holes to sleep in, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He became a homeless man who was poor. Why? For us. For people who are discontent, complaining, people who are faithless and, you know, full of anxiety and people who are greedy with our money. All these things, he came and he loved us and he became poor for us. That he might share his wealth with us. And when we realize we've been loved by that, by him, that is the thing that causes our grip to loosen on our money. And so this is the second question we're going to talk about is not just what are the temptations that come from wealth, but also how does the gospel transform our relationship to wealth? And there's two things that this passage says. The first is this. Is that first, the gospel enables us to actually enjoy our wealth. Now, you might hear this sermon, you say, you know, that's, that's always how Christians are talking. They don't want us to have pleasures or enjoy our wealth or, you know, enjoy any good things. It's always about giving away our money. And that's not, that's not what this passage says at all. 
Look at what it says, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Now, a couple things that's so interesting about this passage that, first of all, there's this emphasis on enjoying God's blessings. God wants us to enjoy his blessings. And he says that there is a certain power that it takes. There's a certain, you know, not everyone can do that. You, th- you might think it's easy to enjoy God's blessing, but this says that there's a certain power that you might, a spiritual power you must have to actually enjoy God's blessings. And this, I love how it describes this in verse 20 there. It says, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It's describing this guy that the days are just swiftly going by. He can't even keep track of them. It's not because his life is short and meaningless, but because his life is so utterly absorbed with the richness of God's grace and abundance. He's so enjoying them so much that the days are just swiftly going by. And uh, it's not just that wealth and blessing come from God, but also the ability and power to enjoy those blessings. How do you get that power to enjoy God's blessing? Well, the second thing that we read in this passage is the emphasis on God giving. The way this talks about God is he's just giving and giving. You know, twice it says God is giving. God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy. And then it talks about this is the gift of God. And these two things go together. The happy people are those who are humbled with gratitude. The people that can actually enjoy their possessions, enjoy their wealth, are the ones that know that all of everything they have is a gift from God. They didn't earn it. They don't, they, they don't have a right to it. They don't have control over it. It's all God's abundance that's showering over to them. And they're deeply humbled by that. And um, when we view money in terms of this is the money I've earned, I've worked hard for this, I've planned this, this is mine, I have control over it, I, I get to say what happens over my money. It's very possible that people who love money the most are the ones that enjoy it the least. So the question is, how do you begin to have a life that you actually see that your whole life is grace? It's a gift of grace. How do you begin to see your life that way? The gospel says that that everything about our existence is a gift. It's not something we work for. It wasn't our invention. It's this generous God who's open-handed. You know, why do I even exist? Because God created me. I didn't ask him to create me. He just did. And, why, and you know, I have certain gifts and skills that no one else, you know, other people can't do. And I'm good at it. And they're not good at it. Where did those come from? Those were God's gifts that he wove into who I am. And then I just rejected God. I ignored him for, you know, it's possible for us to just ignore God for years and just not even think about him, not even thank him. And yet, what does he do? He goes and he finds me and he draws me to himself and he brings me into his family. And he adopts me as his son. And then he says, I get to be joint heir with Jesus over all things when the kingdom of God comes and I have eternal life. All these things, what did I work for? I didn't work for any of them. It's all grace. And so that I see every meal that I have, everything that I buy, 
my home, my clothes, these are all gifts from God's hand. And when my life is just covered with grace, you get a power to actually enjoy possessions and wealth for what they are as tokens of his love. They teach you more about his love. But also, a second thing happens when you accept God's grace and you realize my whole life is grace, is not only that it enables you to enjoy your wealth, it also enables us to give our wealth away. And you see this, in this, look at this passage again, verse 13 again. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son who has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, or as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And what this is saying is that the man who had this tight grip on his wealth, and it, it was to his hurt, it, it destroyed who he was because he held onto his wealth so tightly, is the person that never realized that he came into the world naked and he's going naked. He's not taking anything with him. At least none of the earthly possessions, none of the earthly wealth. But if you take Christ into your death, he is wealth, he is riches that do go beyond the grave. And that in him, we have all things. In him, we are far richer than the, mo the richest billionaire in the world. And if we are richer than the richest billionaire in the world, we have a tremendous amount of security with all our possessions. We say, I'm, I'm a son of the most high God who is, he said, if, if he's given me his own son, how will he not also give us all things? And if I have that much security in how rich I am in Jesus, all of a sudden, I can begin to be generous and risking and open my hand with my wealth and not try to control it. What this does, if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I see discontentment, anxiety, and greed in my relationship to money, the answer is not to change your behavior. The answer is to receive God's grace and realize that his hand is immensely open towards you. And when you embrace that, you internalize that in your heart, your grip on your money will begin to loosen. And so as we together repent of our greed, don't turn away from greed toward generosity, but turn away from greed to the generous giver himself. And in him you will become like him. Let's pray together.